Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Nurses get vocal in Chicago. The myth on the nurse shortage in America. And today on the show, the National Council on Occupational Health and the latest from the United Steelworkers. Welcome to the Friday, August 25th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. We're going to start things off with Marcy Goldstein-Gelb, and she serves as co-executive director of a great organization. Do check them out. NationalKosh.org, National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. And as I mentioned, Marcy is co-executive director. She's had that position since 2016. She's been a leader and a strategist in the occupational safety and health and economic justice movements for over 25 years. She also serves on the faculty of the Harvard Trade Union Program at Harvard University Law School. Her work has been devoted to engaging and impacting workers most impacted by dangerous working conditions, low-wage jobs, workers of color, immigrants, women, and youth. Marcy also serves on the Harvard School of Public Health Center for Work, Health, and Well-Being Policy Working Group and the National Academy of Social Insurance's Study Panel on Workers' Compensation. What we're going to talk about today is the crazy heat conditions that workers are working in America right now. Workers, she says, are getting sick, dying every day from the extreme heat-driven situations in America. Frontline workers, especially low-wage, black and brown workers, are the canaries in the coal mine of climate-related tragedies like extreme heat. I mean, we're seeing heat indexes of 120 degrees and legislatures are not addressing this the biden administration is moving but very very slowly and she says they are modest steps announced by the white house and they're trying to push the needle forward on this issue and also there's a responsibility by employers they should be putting in place practical evidence-based measures including adequate rest breaks plentiful fresh water access to shade reduce work schedules, maybe moving work to cooler parts of the day. These are common sense approaches that Marcy is going to talk about on the show. So she'll be our first guest. Then we're going to go to my good buddy, Dave McCall, on behalf of the United Steelworkers. Dave has served as the USW International Vice President of Administration since 2019. He was reelected to that post two years ago. His career of fighting for fairness and justice, which spans decades, began in northwest Indiana with local 6787 that was at Bethlehem Steel's Burns Harbor Integrated Steel Facility. There, while working as a millwright, he was elected to various positions, including grievance chairman, vice president, before he joined the staff at the International. That was back in 1985. Well, a couple of things we're going to talk about on the show today. Number one, the dumping. We addressed this with... Uh, the uh, local 2911, Mark Liptis, just a couple of days ago. And uh, you see a couple of countries, mainly China, dumping tin products, tin-coated steel in the United States. 
and jobs are being lost. So we'll touch on that. And also, there was an unsolicited bid by a Cleveland Cliffs to buy out U.S. Steel. This was a $7.3 billion buyout offer. U.S. Steel said no, but it's my understanding that it still may happen. And Dave is going to talk about that and what that might mean to the steel industry and to workers, more importantly. So uh, USW.org for complete updates on that and more. All right, now a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management, offering fixed income, real estate, and equity investment options to clients around the country. And you can find more at BoydWatterson.com. Registered nurses with the National Nurses Organizing Committee joined elected officials and labor and community leaders for a town hall last night in Chicago. The speakers addressed the origins of and practical solutions to the short staffing and workplace violence that puts patient care at risk and push nurses to strike at Chicago medical facilities. They also discussed how the proposed Illinois Safe Patients Limit Act would provide a critical pathway to addressing these problems. Comment here from Yolanda Clark, who's an emergency room RN at Jackson Park Hospital in Chicago. This is what she said. Our hospitals are refusing to hire the appropriate number of nurses required to safely care for our patients. Well, that's why nurses voted unanimously to authorize a strike at Jackson Park last month because we can't allow our patients' health to be put at risk. The very future of the nursing profession, she says, is on the line. We are losing nurses from the bedside because their licenses and their patients are being put at risk. We need the Safe Patient Limits Act to keep more nurses at the bedside. The law mandates nurse-to-patient ratios, and it worked in California for years, and it will work here. Now, nurses contend that hospitals are perpetuating the harmful myth of a nursing shortage. Why? To hide their refusal to staff units appropriately. The reality is that data shows clearly there is no true nursing shortage. Now listen to this. Last year, 2022, there were more than 1 million registered nurses with active licenses who were not employed as RNs. According to the most recent Bureau of Labor Statistics data on RN employment, which was updated this past April, there were 3,072,000 employed registered nurses in the country. In comparison, there are 4,604,000 actively licensed RNs in the U.S. And if you boil this down to Illinois, as of May of this year, There are 228,000 actively licensed RNs, while BLS data from May of the previous year, 2022, indicates only 139,000 nurses are actively employed in the state. We got a problem there. Got another comment here from an emergency room nurse at Community First Medical Center in Chicago. That would be Dan Sipkoski. Dan says, when the lack of staff means I can't give every patient the attention they need, it takes a toll on me morally because I know they're not getting the care they need and deserve. We know that lack of appropriate staff leads to more violence in our hospitals. Our patients need health care professionals 
who can address their needs without unnecessary delays, and who can respond to their agitation and distress before they are in a full-blown crisis. I'll tell you, the situation is so bad, not just in Chicago, but around the country. And a lot of this has to do with the switch to for-profit health care. They just want to cut, cut, cut. All right, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to check in with the National Council on Occupational Health. What's going on with heat standards in America? Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Ironworkers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, Canada and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. Let's go to our live line. It's been a long time since we had this woman on the show, and I'll tell you, they do great work. They being National Kosh, the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Nationalkosh.org is their website. And we're talking with Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. She is co-executive director of this organization. Marcy has been a leader and strategist in the occupational safety and health and economic justice movements for, my gosh, over 25 years. And as you know, it's been a very hot summer. And people are exhausted in some cases. They're falling down on the job. Some of them are collapsing and actually dying on the job. Now, the White House has announced a couple of measures here to combat that, but uh, it's it's not far enough, and that's why we have Marcy on the show today. Marcy Goldstein-Gelb, welcome back to America's Workforce. Why don't we just take a look at what's going on here? Uh, it is a very hot summer, and they seem to be getting hotter because of climate change. Um, you've been monitoring this issue for quite some time. Can you tell me where we stand right now? I mean, are we getting some data on the amount of people that are actually being affected by this? Uh, Let's start right there. And obviously that data has to be put to good use to to make some changes here. Correct. Can we talk about that? 
We can absolutely talk about that. And, and just to start by saying, I am so excited to be here with you. Um, your audience is our community. We are the Kosh groups have been a part of the labor movement since before OSHA. Um, and so issues like heat and many other, you know, poor working conditions are what workers and unions bring to Kosh groups all across the country. And we, we and the workers actually that are part of our network call it the summer of heat slaughter because, frankly, this heat, as you said, is causing enormous harm. And we've got, you know, there's, there's what isn't necessarily surprising, though equally tragic. You know, we hear about farm workers and we've got postal workers and construction workers getting ill and dying, and it is absolutely tragic. But even in addition... What's less talked about are also indoor workers, and many folks that are listening to this program work, in, maybe it's a warehouse, maybe it's a restaurant, but in too many indoor facilities and factories and other places, workers are getting sick and ill as well from heat exhaustion and heat stroke. Uh, and you asked about numbers. You know, there's a gross undercount unfortunately, by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But some of the recent numbers that have been documented could be as many as 2,000 fatalities a year. And and then there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of workers that are suffering from various heat stress. And heat stress also, even though it's an illness, you can imagine folks who work in construction on a roof who are mm -hmm. impacted by heat illness who then suffer injuries as a result, or, and, and that could be deadly as well. You know, the White House came out with a fact sheet, and, and I saw this number. We reported on it a couple of weeks ago. They claim more than 400 workers have died due to environmental heat exposure since 2011. Now, wait a minute. That's, that's over 10 years here. 400 just does not sound right. To your point, I think yeah. we're not doing a very good job collecting numbers on that, are we? No, and, and you know, it, it, there's the sort of more formal, official numbers that they're getting, but then there's, once there's further documentation, which some of our partners have done, we've got Public Citizen and others that have been tracking this, it, the numbers are, are, are much higher. And obviously, behind every number, there's a human being, an entire family and coworkers that are, you know, just traumatized by this loss, the loss of a, of a family member, the loss of a, of a, a breadwinner. Um, but the, the thing that's even just more outrageous is, is, you know, we're not helpless in the face of these triple digit temperatures, uh, that there are known measures that prevent mm -hmm. and protect workers from heat illness. They're incredibly common sense. And some states have actually, you know, state OSHA plans have actually enacted some of these measures. We know they save lives, rest breaks, water proper ventilation and cooling systems, heat prevention plans with involvement of workers. This isn't rocket science. This is basic, you know, basic sound measures. Uh, and it's outrageous that it's it's not being enacted throughout the country. And I don't think enough states are doing that. I saw in one of your uh, releases, only five out of 50 states have workplace safety rules to protect against exposure to extreme heat. Oregon is actually the only state that protects both indoor and outdoor workers. So, so right now, with that being said, 
We don't have any major federal policy. I know Biden has announced a few things. I'll get into that in a minute here, and many are saying it's just not enough. But right now, it's a state-by-state thing then, right? Some states better than others, right? It's it's an entire hodgepodge and, and worker it's not it shouldn't be Russian roulette our safety protection system for workers uh, you know it, nicely done as you you know you said in terms of you know pointing out that we've got you know Oregon the the only place that does have indoor and outdoor uh, we've got California that has it it is a hodgepodge uh, we've got a couple you know. Uh, that are just indoor, uh, that's uh, Minnesota's heat standard. So this isn't a way to ensure that that there's consistency and it's confusing and is actually kind of harmful to be doing it in this piecemeal way. There needs to be that consistency. And so, yes, we have, you know, as part of our movement in, in collaboration with the AFL-CIO and other unions and other worker organizations, called on OSHA, they've begun a process but it's way too long to go through the lengthy process of creating a standard. So one way to really expedite that is to get Congress, which has a bill as we speak that is in play that would call on OSHA to create an interim standard, which is much faster and can last until a full permanent standards in place. That's really, we're, we're mobilizing. Um, we're in fact, uh, Shortly after this podcast airs, there's going to be a week of action, the week of August 28th, engaging union folks from across the country and non-union workers in pushing on Congress to pass this common sense measure. Okay, <laughs> key words there, Marcy. Common sense, and you kind of you kind of you kind of reference that rest breaks. Plentiful fresh water, access to shade, reduce work schedules, maybe moving work to cooler parts of the day, maybe a buddy system. You know, hopefully Mm -hmm. if somebody's not feeling good on the job, your buddy can say, hey, hey, why don't you sit down or maybe call somebody, get them some water right away. I mean, these are, again, common sense approaches here. Why is this so difficult? I mean, there's got to be some employer pushback. And again, there's certain parts of the country that are probably – just not uh, keen on doing this kind of thing. They're, they put profits over people. You know that story. And there's, <laughs> there's another part of this, Marcy. We're talking frontline workers. We're talking yeah. low wage. We're talking black and brown workers. Aren't this, isn't this the segment of the population that's affected the most by this? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was so touching during COVID when we created this new word called essential workers, people who kept us you know, feeding and able to eat and able to have our essential services. It was such a nice expression during COVID and then how quickly, you know, the country forgets. Um, you know, where those that are most impacted, certainly this impacts all workers, and that's why it's an important area of solidarity. But disproportionately, we're talking farm workers with a, with a strong, you know, a very heavily Latino workforce, 35% more likely to die from heat stress than overall U.S. workers, African-American construction workers, heat-related deaths 51 percent higher than other construction workers. And, you know, again, restaurant workers, those that are back of the house in the kitchen, in the hot kitchen that, you know, Restaurant Opportunity Center, one of our partners, just held a press conference releasing a report on the impact of heat on restaurant workers. And you can just imagine, you know, we're talking you know, temperatures into the the high 90s um, in the back of those restaurants without air conditioning. So this is something that that unites all of us in the labor movement. You asked about industry. 
industry is always going to push back against any common sense measures and they'll use any rationale. Oh, the, you know, it's going to put them out of business. And, you know, they, I mean, frankly, what I often think and, and say is that these industry associations need to have a reason to exist. And so, you know, they have to do something for their members. So pushing back on common sense measures to try to save companies a buck sounds like some way to keep, <laughs> to keep themselves going. But the bottom line sure. is that, you know, the states that have enacted these measures, I don't see farms closing down um, or, you know, or construction not happening in Oregon. It just doesn't happen. But, what, you know, the truth is we know that, um, you know, every time a, a, a measure of safety is enacted, companies end up saving money on workers' compensation and lost productivity. And insurance companies know this. So, yeah. you know, we just sort of scoff at those associations that push back. Marcia, I have to wonder, though. I mean, this summer has been atrocious. I mean, look at the temperatures in the southwest. Look at Texas. Look at Florida, where the, the water is it's, it's bleaching the coral off the beaches. I mean, yeah. I don't know when people are going to wake up and realize that things are changing. Something has to be done. That's another issue. I can't get into that right now. But the very point of what I'm saying here is uh, we've got an issue, and I'm uh, with this heat. And, and people are dying in this heat. I'm just wondering, you've been at National Kosh for a long time now. Are we at that stage right now? You mentioned some, some policy at the White House that they're talking about. Are we at the crossroads of getting something done? What, what's your gut telling you right now? I actually have reason to hope that, well, A, um, you know, we are going to be you know, pushing and moving forward with um, getting OSHA to pass, to, to enact their, their heat rule. Um, you know, we're working at, let's put it this way. It needs to happen at multiple levels. Anytime you have a successful uh, worker protection, it's often come from pressure at multiple points. Our um, affiliate in Florida, for example, we count, has been working with um, day laborers and farm workers uh, hundreds of them showing up at hearings to push for a county um, ordinance for heat protection. Uh, we've mm -hmm. got folks that that worked in um, in Texas to get those ordinances passed, and unfortunately, that that's had a setback. Um, but all across the country, work is being done. We're going to continue to make sure that OSHA moves forward. But right now, the most efficient way to do this is to get Congress to pass. Um, the you know measure calling for an interim OSHA uh, protection, and we think that there there's a way to do it um, if it's connected to something that uh, is moving along and and is advancing. Um, then we're going to see it move a, a lot faster, and so our attention needs to go all across the labor movement of telling Congress you need to co-sponsor this bill. And you mm -hmm. need to move it along. And so we, you know, we're basically rallying our troops and our network across the country uh, the week of August 28th to get, you know, get attention to this. We're sharing worker stories and campaigns and experiences. And, uh, you know, that's the way that that change happens is that solidarity and speaking out and not shutting up until we get the protections we deserve. 
Well, coming from the PR world, which I do on a daily basis, uh, I always say it's it's always about the story, and the stories are compelling. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could share a few with us. I'm going to take a break right now. I want to get into more details on that. You mentioned the interim standard, which is kind of commonplace or common sense. But uh, what I want to do is get your opinion on what should be done. What should we nail down to, to have some teeth in this legislation? We'll do that next with Marcy Goldstein-Gelb joining us in our live line. She is co-executive director of National Kosh. Well, this is the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Do check out their website, nationalkosh.org. We'll continue with Marcy later in the show. We're going to check in with the steelworkers, Dave McCall, will be joining us. He's an international vice president of administration. We're going to talk about more illegal dumping of steel in the United States back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrans. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at boydwatterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at teamster.org. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron Workers, the sky's the limit. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. When you get an opportunity, just sign up. Receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always, always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. Let's go back to our live line rejoin Marcy Goldstein-Gelb. She is co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health, nationalkosh.org. National Kosh links the efforts of local worker health and safety coalitions in communities all around the country advocating for the elimination of preventable hazards in the workplace. And again, the website is nationalkosh.org. There's a lot of accidents that happen in the workplace on a daily basis. And for the most part, they are preventable. Let's be honest about that. We're talking about uh, the hot summer that we've encountered and the fact that the White House, and I want to get your opinion on this. You you talked about this uh, interim plan that uh, Congress is looking at as a piece of legislation uh, in their in their rulemaking. They want to like a interim standard dealing with the with the heat situation for people that are 
working in, in various parts of the country where, you know, you're seeing temperatures of 120, 130 degrees, which is absolutely ridiculous. Now, Biden announced a couple of actions here recently. The um, hazard alert for heat. They started a website, heat.gov. It's a website for the National Integrated Heat Heat Health Information System with interactive maps, weather forecasts, and some recommendations. Now, are these like baby steps here to realize, okay, I mean, obviously a lot more needs to be done. And you said there's a call call for action that's going to happen next week starting on Monday. But are these like uh, just responses to the situation right now? Again, you're talking common sense approaches here, but some of those employers are not dealing with common sense approaches. What's your take on what the White House, how the White House is handling this right now, Marcy? Yeah, so so this is the 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 problem <laughs> with our with our Department of Labor with OSHA is that um, to get us actual protections, meaningful protections, uh, the process is so lengthy. Uh, it could take seven years and or more. And, you know, an administration is four years at a time. So regardless of, you know, the tools in the toolbox of our, our federal safety system are broken. <laughs> so having, you know, having the ability to enact meaningful, urgent measures is extraordinarily difficult. So I, we appreciate and recognize that, the, that OSHA is using the tools that it has available, which is guidance saying, here's what, you know, measures you should be putting in place. Here's how to look for, you know, what the temperatures are and at various temperatures, you really should be enacting this, that, the other thing. Um, And we will use, you know, when we do our enforcement, we will be taking this into consideration because there's that rule called the general duty clause, which says generally workers have a right to safety and health. It's not enough. So, uh, that's why there needs to be an extra tool, a really critical tool given to OSHA by Congress, because only Congress can say, go for it. Here's an interim rule, get it in place. And then that's basically a rule. I mean, it's basically the protections that we need. And then certainly it can, it will move into permanency, you know, through the permanent rule making process, but it basically puts those protections in place much more quickly and, you know, doesn't rely on you should do this and we will be generally investigating. It's, you know, again, this is the tool that OSHA has in its broken system, but with Congress taking action, we can get the meaningful protections that workers deserve. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's a step in the right direction. Here's the problem. There are lawmakers, and you know this, Marcy, that mm-hmm. don't like OSHA. I mean, there's a, I believe it was a lawmaker in the state of Arizona. He says he wants, as far as funding, because it's, you know, it's part of the Department of Labor, he says uh, it should be zero for next year. I mean, <laughs> there, there, there's yeah. the opinion that, oh, well, employers know what to do. They don't need any, any rulemaking. They don't need a, to follow anything. They're, they're smart enough to know this. But this is what you're dealing with right now. With that being said, <laughs> how do we combat that, in your opinion? Well, the, you know, the week of action, and it's actually, you know, though it's kind of focused on next week, it's, it's something that needs to continue year round, which is that the labor movement does what it does best, and that is solidarity. It's sharing their experiences, their stories, and wielding its power. And so 
we're, you know, you don't just stop at legislation because, frankly, even passing a standard is meaningless without labor taking action. Um, so we will always support and encourage workers and unions to use whatever tools they have for taking collective action, putting pressure on employers, speaking out. And it's happening all over the country. You know, we mm-hmm. just the other week had a, a, a training with uh, SEIU and their airport workers who are experiencing extreme heat and how can they you know, use the tools and collective action that they currently have in place to demand these protections. So it's not a one, a single silver bullet. Um, we need to always use uh, the collective power that we have, but you know, we, we don't want to let Congress off the hook. We want to let them know your, your, you know, our lives are in your hands. And if you are going to wipe your hands away from workers who are getting sick and dying, we're going to hold you responsible. So it's not one or the other. It's absolutely both. And one little promotional thing I'll make, even though it's a few months away, is that in December, we will be convening for our national conference, uh, KashCon, and that brings together the labor movement from across the country to really tackle and strategize about how to have meaningful impact on a whole host of working condition issues. So that's another opportunity for, you know, uniting and solidarity. All right. We'll definitely cover that uh, in the months ahead. Let me ask you, let me go back to Oregon here. Uh, we sure. talked earlier about Oregon being the only state which protects both indoor and outdoor workers. It sounds like they put a lot of work into this program, and it would probably could be like a model for other states. I'm just wondering here. Um, we're still going to see some states do better than others. Let's be honest. There's 50 states right. here. They're all, right. they're all uniquely different and all that. The federal standards that you'd like to get going here, this, this legislation, the interim heat standard, is this like a, a low level? Uh, uh, it, it's it's going to cover, of course, all 50 states, but it's uh, it's a start. So some states could be more proactive than others. Does it give them that leeway to, to do that kind of thing? So um, so first, uh, you know, as you said, um, uh, you know, we have a long history in this country of action and change taking place locally and in states that then leads to really robust protections. So the, the right to know, which is about chemicals, that was sort of a state by state organizing campaign to the point where companies were like, oh, this is really confusing. We probably do need a, you know, like there was enough pressure uh, because it was state by state that even, you know, we, we sort of dragged, you know, companies to, to the table to some extent, but certainly mm-hmm. it was a labor led effort. But, uh, you know, that having that consistency was sort of a rationale. Similarly, um, across the country, there there are campaigns I mentioned, you know, in, in a county in Florida, because it's going to be harder at the state level, obviously, um, and uh, other parts of the country where they're pushing for state protections. So there are um, OSHA plans, which are in some parts of the country run by the states, and those must be equal or better than federal OSHA. So if there is a strong OSHA standard that's passed, all the states need to make sure that they're equal or better. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if, they're, um, if, this, if it passes, then a, a state that is, is you know, run by federal OSHA you know, federal OSHA is the one that's going to be enacting it. It's not like a state can also pass 
its own plan if it does, I'm not trying to be confusing, but just to sort, of, <laughs> to sort of clarify, there are state plans run by the states that have to be as good or better as federal OSHA. And then there are states that are run by our federal government. And, you know, you can't have a conflicting state plan if you have the federal OSHA running it. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Well, I got it. It's a little confusing. <laughs> it is a little confusing, but you know, this is this is a tough issue to embrace and we we have to do something because it's not going to get any cooler. And it's interesting to note Oregon took the lead on this because I remember it was maybe a year or two ago. They had ridiculously hot weather. I mean, when I normally think of Oregon and everything has changed now, I think of it kind of cool, a cool place. And I don't mean that in another way. I mean cooler temperatures. And I remember temperatures being like well over like 105, 110 degrees in parts. In fact, Portland, Oregon yeah. is, is ridiculously hot right now. So yeah. maybe the fact that they changed so much there probably led to the standards that they were able to accomplish there because they're only they're, they've definitely taken the lead. And there uh, there's only five states out of 50 that that have rules that protect employees, which is so darn important. Marcy, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate this. And again, oh, okay. So next week, this is a call to action for all of our listeners. Should they go to your website? Please, yes. Nationalkosh.org. You'll see a link to the, the week of heat action and spread the word. Use your social media. Get your uh, folks and communities to to, to contact Congress doesn't mean you shouldn't speak out in other ways and tell your stories because that is actually critical. Um, but we need, you know, we need to put pressure and get those stories out there. Okay. Nationalkosh.org. Nationalkosh, C-O-S-H dot O-R-G. Marcy Goldstein-Gelb, co-executive director of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Thank you so much for your time, your passion on this issue. And let's uh, let's stay on it. Let's talk again. Okay. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dave McCall, who is an international vice president for one of our premier sponsors, that would be the United Steelworkers, USW.org. He's coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of LIUNA, the Laborers International Union of North America, delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections.
America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. Hey, this is Sean McGarvey, and I'm president of North America's Building Trades Unions, and I'm a proud listener of America's Workforce. I love this podcast. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferrans. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter or X, whatever the name is of that company, and that would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. And if you like a show, I keep saying this, Please share that show. We like to uh, make sure we can grow America's workforce, and we're doing just that now in the top 5% of all podcasts in the United... Well, actually, the entire world. I say we broadcast out of Cleveland, we podcast the entire world. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency, where you can find more at ulagency.org. Let's go to uh, line number two right now. Welcome a dear friend, and I remember... You know, I started hosting the show back in 1998, and almost every day on the show back then, that was a different time, there was a live show in the morning, we were talking about the steel industry going bankrupt. And it's hard to believe that between 1998 and 2002, American Steel resulted in 50 companies seeking bankruptcy protection. 50 companies in that four-year period. And Dave McCall, back then, was the District 1 director, or almost District 1. Actually, he took that position a few years later. But he was on the show talking about it. Dave, I can't believe it was that long ago. And now, fast forward to today, and Cleveland Cliffs is trying to buy U.S. Steel. Man, your head's got to be spinning all the time you get involved with the steelworkers, brother. What a crazy time for you, huh? Hope you're doing well. And, you know, because of a lot of good work of, of people like you, making sure that the public knows what's going on, our members, our retirees, uh, some of the great leadership we've had in the union, and finding some decent owners, steel industry in America is doing pretty good in most locations, in most places. And, you know, I happen to be in in Cleveland today and uh, outside, right outside the Union Hall. And this mill in Cleveland that everybody said was going to be gone in 1998 and 1999 is the most productive steel making, integrated steel making plant in the world. We make steel at one man hour per ton here. And it's because of the dedicated workforce that's here and the great leadership that we've got in our local union here in Cleveland. Oh, I remember, too, there are a lot of people saying, oh, you know what, that's that's an old industry. We don't need that anymore. Other countries are doing it cheaper. They're doing it faster. And they wanted to uh, surrender that uh, that part of America. And, you know, they I guess they didn't realize that, you know, national defense is part <laughs> of, of what we're talking about when it comes to steelmaking. And it's important that we make that product here in the United States of America so to, we don't rely on a company like China that could be at war with us down the road. I mean, it's important that our lawmakers understand that. Are they getting better? Because, Dave, I bring this up. You remember what was going on with we when we normalized trade with China back in uh, 2001. That's when Clinton was in office, and look look what happened with NAFTA. Same thing there. But uh, a lot of these lawmakers said, "Oh yeah, we got to do this. It's going to be better." Boy, that that didn't turn out that that well, did it? Now, Dave? No, it did not. And you know, it's not about them being more productive or more efficient. Um, 
or anything else. It was really about some of the same stuff that's going on even today, them cheating. And we've, you know, been very involved in in uh, in Washington and making sure that these countries that import steel into the into the U.S. Uh, that they're doing it with fair trade laws. And unfortunately, in some of our products that we're still making. Uh, we're dealing with uh, subsidized steel coming in from other countries that really puts our future in jeopardy. Um, there's now, been- aren't they aren't they going through Mexico? I know we 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 got the NAFTA 2.0, the USMCA, and uh, things were supposed to be better. But China, aren't they like moving products into Mexico and then Mexico coming to the United States? Isn't that happening? In some cases, that's true. Uh, but at least with the with let's call it NAFTA 2.0, uh, we've got some some ability to be able to challenge that uh, within the government and make sure that they are following some of those same rules. And you know, much of the Buy American provisions that are in this latest infrastructure bill uh, requires steel to be melted and poured in the U.S. So they can't melt uh, slabs or hot bands in China ship them over here on a boat and then finish them and call it made in America. It's got to be melted and poured here in the U.S., which protects our steelmaking capacity. And that's an important aspect of making sure that we do have fairly traded products and we do have materials for national defense. And we have to make sure we write those provisions in the law. That's the important part there. And it's being done slowly but surely. So what's going on with this um, tin sheet products, illegal dumping of tin sheet products? Can you give us some details on that? Right now today, uh, the tin market in the U.S., uh, it's about 50 percent import penetration from other countries around the world. And, you know, we made a uh, we filed the complaint uh, jointly with Cleveland Cliffs. We still we make tin at Cleveland Cliffs in uh, in Weirton, West Virginia. But with a lot of that uh, substrate comes out of Cleveland and other facilities here. But you know they're dumping they're dumping tin plate in, and then the you know the guys that make can say, oh yeah, but it's a lot cheaper. Well, it's a lot cheaper because it's stolen goods <laughs> when it's when it's sold at prices below. Uh, what it costs for them to make it or it's subsidized by their government, that's illegal and unfair trade. And that's what we're trying to prevent. Gotcha. You know, you bring up Cleveland Cliffs, and I saw the story about uh, them trying to buy U.S. steel or merge with them. And they've been on a buying spree, too, over the last couple of years. They uh, purchased AK Steel and ArcelorMittal uh, back in 2020, both of those deals in 2020. So <laughs> this would be one giant steel company here. Where Where's the steelworkers on this, Dave? Well, we're strongly supporting uh, Cleveland Cliff's uh, bid to buy uh, the U.S. steel assets. Um, you know, provisions in our collective bargaining agreements and our integrated plants, uh, we've got the right to bid. We've got successorship clauses. And it, what's right for... It's right for our members and what's right for the industry is what we support. And, you know, U.S. Steel for many, many years has been considered or been uh, known as the iconic steel company. Uh, But here, you know, in the last decade or so, they've not invested back in the plants the way they should. They've made commitments to us that they were going to rebuild a lot of facilities and build new facilities here in the U.S. And then they go out. And they spend uh, a tremendous amount of money and buy a non-union facility down in Arkansas. And it's our fear that at the end of the day, uh, U.S. Steel is is uh, 
turning its back on the American workers that made it an iconic steel company. And so, Cleveland Cliffs, a different story there, isn't it? A much different story with Cleveland Cliffs. Uh, you know, we were we were very frustrated with ArcelorMittal in, in that we really felt like they were harvesting a lot of the assets in the plants, and they weren't putting the money in that they should have. And our relationship, you know, over the last five years has really, really uh, turned bad. And uh, when when Cliffs took over, you know, we got our, a blast furnace rebuilt here and in uh, Cleveland and a lot of other assets around around the other facilities in Northwest Indiana and Eastern Pennsylvania. And they lived up to their commitments. And, you know, we don't uh, certainly don't get along all the time about all issues, but when you deal with people that's got credibility and integrity, uh, it's much easier to be able to represent your members. Well, right now, U.S. Steel said uh, no, but things can change. And obviously, you've got regulators on this because this would be a, a giant, a giant catch here for, for Cleveland Cliffs. We'll, we'll see what happens here. Of course, you'll hear it right here on America's Workforce. Another issue here, uh, green steel, the next generation of green steel. We're talking about decarbonization, and we hear a lot about uh uh, the fact that we have too much carbon, that we we have coal that has carbon, and we have to uh, uh, somehow eliminate the carbon in the atmosphere because of climate change. So, give us uh, give me some details on what's going on with uh, with this production, Dave, if you don't mind. No, I, I listen. I think it's another good reason why we're uh, supportive of Cleveland Cliffs and some of the things they've done. You know. Uh, Around the world, people will tell you that electric arc furnaces are the solution to decarbonizing uh, the industry, and that uses all scrap. Uh, so there's no uh, no uh, raw iron ore that's melted. Well, eventually you run out of scrap. But I mean, EAF does uh, probably produce it does produce less less carbon. But in blast furnaces, where you know we make the best exposed automotive steel, where we make uh, the best quality plate where we make the only only uh, companies that can make uh, these tin products are blast furnace um, produced hot iron. And besides issues like carbon capture, uh, where you can capture the carbon that's coming out and, and uh, uh, capture it so that it doesn't go into the atmosphere as a solution, probably the best um, innovative innovation that's happening is around hydrogen and around using hydrogen in the blast furnaces along with uh, iron ore. It does eliminate uh, the use of coke and coal, uh, but on the other hand, with hydrogen, which produces uh, hydrogen and oxygen uh, through with through water, you can light up your blast furnaces with that as well. And um, Cleveland Cliffs has already done uh, some experiments with hydrogen in their blast furnaces in Middletown. We're scheduled to do the same thing in northwest Indiana. And if we can capture these hydrogen hubs that's coming out uh, through the IRA and, and through infrastructure, uh, we can really convert our blast furnaces in this country into zero-carbon producing uh, facilities. And uh, Cleveland Cliffs is really on the edge of that. And that's good for the environment. It's good for our members. You know, I, I speak to our members lots of times who do produce uh, coke and, and coal, and you know, if we build hydrogen hubs around those plants, those are going to be the same good-paying jobs for them. And, you know, I think back into the 70s when we had the Clean Air and Water Act and we had to put lots of um, 
uh, scrubber facilities to clean the gas and clean the water before it went back out in the atmosphere. It was a big change in technology, but it produced a lot of jobs and made made uh, less pollution. We can continue to do that and still continue to have good paying, solid jobs within this industry. And as you mentioned, it's, um, it's positive for national defense as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We want a vibrant industry and it's it's shameful that some politicians didn't see it that way some years ago because now we're seeing the fruits of it i mean it's uh, as you indicated at the start of this interview that it's much better than it was especially back in the 90s when we had all those companies going belly up so good things happening i don't want to relive that that's for sure (laughs) no you don't no you don't Mm -hmm. yeah i didn't think your voice was going to hold up you were on almost every day back then because we were wondering oh no another one down there's j and l there's ltv bethlehem steel i mean there was one after another after another it was horrible bad time in america but But the steel workers to the strength of the steel workers you came out of it you started the viva program you helped your workers and that's what unions do that's the thing that i guess uh, our union should be most proud of throughout those bankruptcies, specifically LTV. We had 87,000 retirees and surviving spouses who lost all the health care that they were promised after all those decades of work inside those mills. When the company went bankrupt, they lost all their, all their health care and had nothing left. Of course, their pensions went back to the PBGC, but no health care. By reinventing the industry and how it was settled, beginning with ISG and then later with other steel companies, we developed those VIBAs that today, although there's not 87,000 of them left, there's only about 60,000 left, are still collecting their health care and their benefits based on that VIBA through those contributions of of our members who came back to work and dedicated part of their money uh, into those VIBAs to protect those health care benefits, and we should be most proud of that. Never forget that. By the way, those of you listening, VIBA stands for Voluntary Employees Beneficiary Association, the VIBA trusts that uh, Dave was referring to. All right, buddy, you take care. I know you got a lot on your plate. We appreciate you. We appreciate the Steelworkers as proud sponsors, longtime sponsors of America's workforce, USW. Dot org national website lots of good information there lots of great videos as well so you stay safe stay strong and stay in touch okay brother thank you very much it's great talking to you again and that'll be it for another edition of america's workforce coming up on monday we'll check in with the president of the transport workers union and the bud program building union diversity in the trades until then all of you have a safe and wonderful weekend That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.